from Flourish DX, this is the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. With workplace mental health becoming a priority for businesses who want to retain staff and prevent burnout, this is the source of information for creating sustainable and psychologically healthy workplaces in Canada. Welcome to Psych Health and Safety in Canada podcast. I'm your host, Marianne Baton, and today I'm really fortunate to have with us Christopher Marks. Christopher is the owner of the Vive Mental Health and the host of the Vive Mental Health podcast. And when you listen to his voice, you're going to understand why he's so successful there. Christopher, welcome. Hi, Marianne. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. Can we start off, Christopher, with you telling folks a little bit about your journey? How did you even come to learn about the term psych health and safety? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, depends how far back I want to go. So, but I, I'll preface it with this. I think it's really important to understand someone's why um, whenever they embark on a new journey or it's, it's important to understand why they do what they do and what drives them. So I'll, I'll kind of, I'll keep it as concise as I can, but I've, I'll start off by saying I've lived a life and I've had many um, experiences happen to me that I've been fortunate to um, be a part of, but it, it started out um, in, in a bit of a traumatic way as a, as a young guy. Um, the first trauma that I dealt with was divorce. Um, I came from a divorced family as many, many kids do in the nineties and I'm 39 now. So it was, it was starting to become more common as I grew up. And I, um, I moved out when I was 18. Um, and I, I had a bit of a secret at the time that my parents didn't know about. I, I had experienced trauma, um, when I was in grade 10 and it was at the hands of, uh, three boys that I was, I was becoming friends with. And it would, it was a hazing that kind of went awry. And so I, I had the secret as a teenager. Um, it was a very traumatic event. And when I left home, I kind of kept things to myself, but I wasn't, I wasn't sleeping well. And uh, I had to start my working life at 18. I had my own apartment. Um, I did the best I could. I worked, you know, bit jobs. I was, I was really uh, undereducated about life, living on your own. I was just a, a naive city boy. Um, and I made that work for a couple of years doing what I could. And then I, I ended up, uh, I found myself houseless one day at 20. And I was evicted from my apartment. I wasn't very good with money back then. And uh, I ended up on the streets for a couple months uh, here, in, here in Edmonton. And uh, I really struggled with my mental health. Um, at that time, uh, I wasn't sleeping right. I was feeling depressed more often. Um, but I didn't really know how to articulate those things and where it affected my, my employment was in my mid twenties, I kind of, uh, started to get my life back together, reconnect with my parents. Um, I was hitting a bit of a mature crossroads in my life and my, my father played hockey with a, with a gentleman who owned a machine shop up in Grand Prairie, uh, which is about four hours from Edmonton. So I left all my friends and my life behind. I moved up there and I started a blue collar trade. And uh, for those that, that know me, I, I suppose most don't, but I'm a, I'm a bit of an artsy fartsy guy. Uh, I play music. I love drama, uh, comedy. And uh, fitting into a blue collar culture was difficult for me, but I'm very, I'm very adaptable. And just the life that I had to live, I was, uh, I, I relied on that adaptability and my sense of humor and willingness to go along with things quite well. So I got into this, uh, this work culture that was heavily male dominated. And it was, it was a bit shocking in some ways. There were some behaviors that, that went on that I, uh, I'd never seen before or experienced. And uh, it was, it was a bit of a toxic workplace, but it was, it was employment and it was, it gave me some purpose in my life. And I went, I went with it the best I could. So I got my journeyman ticket as a machinist and I worked in the trades for 15 years. Um, the whole time I, I struggled with my own mental health, um, 
just being being a male it was tough to open up about it um I didn't know what therapy looked like I didn't know how you even started that process thankfully I had a few friends that I could be myself with because I am just naturally fairly in touch with my my feelings and I would hint at you know there's this thing that's affecting my sleep and I noticed that I would be losing my job occasionally because I couldn't get out of bed sometimes for two or three days I wouldn't eat I would just hit a depressive episode and I would have to call in and lie about the reason pretend to be sick and I felt terrible for it um it affected my relationships and I just kept plugging away um for 15 years I did that and I enjoyed the work I love working with my hands and things like that but it felt like I was living a double life and that was really hard to reconcile because I I just wanted to live my truth I, I wish people knew what I struggled with I didn't know anybody that had night terrors or, or anything like that and um so we'll fast forward to COVID hits um my mental health had been very up and down. I, I struggled a lot again, just quietly. And uh, I lost my job. I was laid off due to COVID, um, lack of work. And I was at a serious crossroads in my life in my late 30s. And I, I decided that um, about a year prior, I, I became more active on social media talking about mental health. I was a little more comfortable with um, articulating what I was going through. And I found a penchant for creating space for others to kind of open up. Um, it's something I really value. That, that's a gift I think you can give to somebody is when you can open a safe space for them and they trust you. I take that very seriously. And um, I noticed just through my interactions that people would reach out and they would have questions or compassion. And there was this community out there of people who felt really siloed and really alone. And I looked at it as, as an opportunity to get into mental health in some capacity. I had no idea what that would look like. Um, so I just started connecting and networking. So I'm unemployed. Um, I called the government. I said, is it okay if I try to start building a business? And they said, yep. Um, so I had their blessing and I figured out what that might look like. I connected with businesses, CEOs, uh, psychologists, counselors, uh, HR people, um, everybody just kind of gave me the lowdown on what was happening in workplaces because uh, the experiences I had in, in the trades really stuck with me. And I thought that there was, I could be a part of maybe a cultural change individually and, and with some of these businesses to maybe make it easier for people like me to be open about their struggles and how that would affect their work life. And um I, I had somebody kind of take notice and say, many of my clients are male dominated industries, many trades industries. And she said, you know, you, you have potential here. And I'd like to teach you about psychological safety in the workplace. And she runs um, webinars and seminars and presentations. Um, I ended up becoming certified through the CMHA as a certified psychological health and safety advisor. I did their training. Um, and I just started working. I started finding clients, pitching them on the benefits of, of what it would mean to bring mental health, to, to broach that subject in the workplace. And uh, so far, they've been very receptive. And I, I've never been more fulfilled in a, in a career move, as challenging as it is to be an entrepreneur. I'm self-employed. Um, we work a lot because you have to <laughs> by necessity, but it's it's a labor of passion. And uh, I started the podcast to kind of um, use it as a tool. I love to talk. Obviously, I've been talking for five minutes now. But um, I, I, love to, I love to talk about this subject because it's very near and dear to me. Where, where I've come from, um, I, can, I can relate a lot in my presentations. I, I'm very open about everything that I've healed from, which is important if when you're sharing personal experience and lived experience. It's important to share, you know, things that you're comfortable with. So I do. And um, it may not be for everybody, but it's, it's turned out to be for most people. I think humanizing mental health and undressing the, the benefits of it to different companies and businesses. I work with 
nationwide businesses, small businesses, restaurants, um, and they all have different needs and they all have different questions. So it's, it's kind of nice to, I don't have to think much. I have a lot of lived experience to go on. And I also have the training to, um, to answer the more pertinent questions. And it's, it's been wonderful being a resource for businesses. And that's kind of my, that's kind of my why. And that's kind of where I, I come from, how I came to be here. That's a, a, a long and winding road. Yes, um, it has. Yeah. So I want to go back to that trauma that you had in grade 10, that hazing, which mm -hmm. there's reasons why we want to make that illegal and stop it. But mm -hmm. what do you think you could say now to young people who have suffered a traumatic incident about your advice about what they should do about it? That's a really good question. Um, I want to answer it maybe in two ways. So one, um, having, having the awareness of, of your fellow classmates and your, if, like if I'm speaking to a student, to have the awareness not only of yourself, but of what's going on around you uh, and who you're interacting with and to realize that we, we talk a lot about the power of your voice to speak up, um, but not a lot of work goes into what that looks like and how, how to speak up. Uh, you know, we, we think of it as step one, but there's like eight steps before you can find the courage or articulate what happened or to find the person to speak up to. Um, those are the questions that I, I want kids to ask their parents. And those are, uh, and, and teachers and mentors and things like that. But I also want the people who are looking after kids to broach these subjects like straight on. Cause I, I was a popular student, even at a new school, I was, I was a good, you know, I was a good student. I was popular. It was funny. Uh, and it happened to me and it felt shocking at the time. But as I, as I matured, I realized that uh, it can, it can happen to anybody. And it was, it was very, it happened very quick. Um, I don't want to say innocently, but it, it was just a situation that escalated and we were kids. And uh, if you think back to when you were, you know, 15 years old, you didn't have a real grasp of what the consequences could be. And I'm 39 now, and I'm still living with PTSD. I was diagnosed um, with PTSD from that trauma. Um, so I, I can't stress enough how important it is for kids to think critically about their environments and their interactions and the impact that it could have. And, you know, I've, I've reconnected with some friends from high school over the years, and we've gone back and talked about events that we both remember and how interesting it was, how differently we remember certain things based on our circumstances or what we were feeling. Um, kids feel everything. We feel everything. And we don't learn to suppress our feelings until we mature into adulthood. I never want to see that taught out of kids. I never want to see them suppressed or feel the need to because, because of fear of social stigma and, and things like that are, are really hard to explain. But it's important that we try. And we put things in place. We use examples, real life examples, exposure, and we really highlight the benefits of, of speaking up, you know, if it's bullying, if it's, uh, whether it's in person or on online, um, we, you have a voice and it's important and our, our societal culture has shifted. We can, we can change. We can, we're listening better now than we ever have. So yeah. I, I want, I want the kids to know that and I wish I did. I really do. I always said to my boys is that you can listen to everybody. They might have a better idea, but you have to take responsibility for your own decisions. You never blindly follow anybody. And my kids joke that uh, I forgot to tell them except for me, but <laughs> it, uh, it is true that we don't want to raise children that are blindly obedient because they're much more likely to have that experience, right? Where they go along with something that may not be good for them. But Christopher, in terms of um, 
you know, hindsight, which is Mm -hmm. always much better. If you are looking now at somebody who has, it's too late, they've already experienced a traumatic incident. Mm -hmm. What would you tell them to do to start their journey to um, well-being, to being able to manage I know personally, the, the worst feeling was not feeling seen or understood. Um, when things are inside you, it, it can feel very complex and daunting to articulate them. Um, I had no idea where to start. I canceled my first two therapy appointments um, just out of blind fear. I, I was so uncomfortable with the idea of someone knowing my secret. Like I did a really good job of keeping it. And it becomes a part of you and you start to identify with, with it. Um, I guess, I guess my advice would be there is somebody in your life who is safe to you. It doesn't matter who you are. There's someone who is safe to you. And if you're listening to this and maybe you're thinking about, you know, maybe it's time to, to get help and you don't know where to start. Think about your safe person who they are, what they mean to you. Do they know how much they mean to you? um, How much you mean to them? And that's, I want you to start that conversation with, with creating a bond with somebody you trust. And then, and then you can practice and you can, you can open up a little bit at a time. Trust is so important um, because for those of us who have experienced trauma, it, be- it becomes so much of a part of us. We almost don't want to let it go because maybe we've identified with it for so long. Um, but it's so important to understand. It's so empowering to understand us, to understand ourselves. And uh, it, it starts with just trusting one person to say, hey, you know, I, I don't feel right. There's this thing that bothers me. Maybe it's something you don't like about yourself. Somebody that you trust can hear that and remind you that this is a good thing, that you're worthy of, of getting help. And uh, I think that's the most important first step. Yeah. So to reach out to anybody that, because now it's not just all in your head, you've gotten some of it out. You're able to, it's almost like to me, a pressure valve, you get to release a little bit of the pressure because you've been able to share it with someone. But you said something that I found um, really interesting that I wonder if you could explain more. And mm-hmm. that is the idea that we identify with a trauma, with an illness, with a disability. Can you help people understand why would you want to identify with something that you don't like? That's a really good question. And I think um, what happens when we experience traumatic events is we feel that something's taken away from us, Um, whether it's our innocence, whether it's something we didn't ask for this to happen. And I'm just going to speak candidly and personally, I'm I'm not a psychologist. Um, I've spoken with my therapist at length about my identity and how lost it felt because of this trauma and just what that looked like. Um, so I'm just going to speak from the heart about this answer. There was a, there was a big piece of my, I call it my shine that was taken away. Um, and I didn't ask for the night terrors and I became very bitter, um, as, as outgoing, as, as charismatic as I, I could be on the outside. It, I was very bitter and I was very like, why me? Very self-loathing. And that's something I struggle with to this day. So when you can't get rid of, when something's taken away from you, you have to fill it with something. So I filled mine with self-loathing and bitterness. And I began, I began to identify with that, um, for example, through my art, through my music. So I played hard rock music, punk music. I was in a band for like eight years and that was my outlet. And people enjoyed listening to my pain my painful lyrics. So I began to identify that like, you know, I'm a broken soul. I can, I can use this for my art and it it was a coping mechanism, but it was also me not unworking kind of what I'd filled my void with. So it became a part of my identity. And 
candidly, when I started doing mental health work, um, I relied heavily on my lived experience and I began to identify as someone who I've experienced trauma. I've lived a lot of experiences in my life. And I've personally found, I found it to be beneficial to compartmentalize a little bit about what has happened to me and away from the things that I do for others. And that, that was a big step in my healing process was to, I can remove some of that bitterness and self-loathing and trauma. Um, I can extract it and I can fill that with other things that bring me joy, for example, uh, which is volunteer work, which is learning a new instrument, travel, um, things that I would punish myself by not doing um, because of the self-loathing and because of the, the pain that I felt, I could replace it with something healthier for me. So when we talk about identifying with your trauma, because it's so deeply personal, it's so deeply ingrained, it's not, it can be very hard to un, unpack that. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to split hairs about, about that. I do tell people like it's difficult, but the best things in life that are worth doing are. And it's, it's, it, it's going to be a badge one day that you're going to wear very proudly to say, you know what, I tried. Even if it doesn't work the first time, even if your first therapist session doesn't go great, if you keep trying, you're inspiring yourself and you're chipping away at this concrete trauma that's inside of you and you're willing yourself to keep going and, and you're willing yourself to, to say, no, I, I'll just get a bigger hammer. You know, I'll try a new tool. So I, I think that's an important mindset to, to consider when we, when we identify with trauma. Is it really a part of you or did it just happen to you? And you, maybe you don't have to carry so much of that with you. Um, uh, in terms of the um, going to the therapist and then mm -hmm. seeing that twice you chickened out that you were afraid can you talk a little bit about what you were afraid of and why you finally changed your mind and went? I, it was just fear. Um, I had, I had a secret that I managed to keep from everyone for many years. The only thing they knew about me was that sometimes Chris slept on the couch because I would have night terrors and I, um, I would just call them nightmares and whatever, but they were, they were worse than that. So to, to come to terms with the fact that like, I have to tell somebody what's going on because I know that it's, it's really hurting me felt incredibly daunting. Um, it was a stranger, you know, I didn't go to my safe person first. I, it just, it got to a point where I realized that like I needed professional help. Um, when I refer referenced our safe person earlier, I mean, that that's like step one, a, if it's, if you're in a really, really tough place, like we can go to step one and I'll, I'll, I'll explain to you how I came about that. But yeah, I booked a, a sliding scale therapist session. I didn't have much money. Um, I canceled twice. That's all true. Yeah, I lied, which felt horrible. Um, I just didn't know what it was going to look like. No, I, my exposure to therapy was like Frasier or, or, you know, random television shows that uh, on a couch and there's tears and somebody very stoic is taking notes and not feeling anything. And I feel everything, everything. I feel empathy. i you know, for everyone except myself. And uh, I was, I just made it up in my mind what, what it would look like. And I was like, I can't, how do I go through this? I'm going to break. And I was terrified of that. And when I finally went the third time, um, I was just very honest and very vulnerable. And I, I sat down with him and I told him exactly what I was scared about. And I, I went on for about 20 minutes and he listened and he just reassured me. And then he asked me what I wanted it to look like, what, like what I was here for. And I said, I just want... I want someone to know who I really am. Like, it's really hard being another person, the life of the party. 
when all I want to be is a wallflower sometimes, right? I just, I just want someone to know what I'm actually like. And he's like, okay, well, like no judgment here. And I spilled and it was the most cathartic moment. It was such a, it was such a release. Um, it, there was ugly crying. Yes. You know, but that, that's my trauma, right? Um, I'm not afraid to cry. So I, I definitely did, but it, it felt really good that someone else on this earth, like that this person kind of knew me the best in that moment, even though he didn't know like my favorite pasta and things like that. <laughs> he knew, he knew my biggest secret, something that I had held on to out of, out of this weird, you know, comfort trauma response, um, filling that void, someone else knew. And I was just relieved that this, how good it felt to, to kind of share my secret and then to, to give myself to him to help me, you know, with his training and whatever, whatever he knows, I just trusted him. And I was like, please tell me what's next. Like, what can we do now? So, so you had over 15 years of keeping the secret of struggling, of having that bitterness, that self-loathing. And then you start um, to reach out to get help. When do you feel, and I know it's an ongoing process, Mm -hmm. but how long was it before you felt like this is actually going to improve my life? Um, When did I start seeing the light? Uh, Mm -hmm. Honestly, after the first session, I went back to him, I think half a dozen more times. And we, we just worked on the trauma. And so I was, I was sexually assaulted in high school was what I experienced. And uh, we just worked on that. And he always threw in, you know, the odd question, like, is there other stuff that, that you think about that you spend a lot of time on? And I said, yeah, like, you know, my, when my parents divorced, it was awful. And like, here's why I'd never told anybody that you just kind of, as a kid, you just, you have to go with it. You get two Christmases, you have parents who maybe don't get along anymore and they talk about each other. And I, you know, I'm like, that was really hard to hear. Like I, my dad was my idol and to hear my mom say things, you know, when she was upset with them and I had in my maturity, like I understand now, and I don't, I don't blame either parent, you know, they did their best. I know they did. They loved us kids, Um, but they're human too. So I didn't understand that until we started to talk about it and I could forgive them for things that I, I felt victimized by feeling. Um, So it happened very quickly and I just learned to kind of embrace the, the ride a lot of my sessions were full of laughter and they would, they weren't all, they weren't all bad. It was just, it was very liberating to kind of tell your truth. And um, it didn't trickled into my everyday life. Like I had better job performance. I kept my jobs longer and I was more content with, I didn't have to think so much. I didn't have to walk on eggshells with being two different people. Um, you know, if I was hurting, I was able to articulate how, um, I didn't, you know, I felt empowered by being able to tell the truth. Like if I can't come into work, like, this is why I'll work with you on, on, you want me to come in on Saturday to make it up or whatever. I'm just like, right now I can't. And like what that looked like. So it, it's been an ongoing process. I haven't continually been in therapy for 15 years or, you know, I, I go through phases and, um, you know, there's, there's different barriers that we understand, like, like financial barriers and different logistics that make it hard to have a continual therapist. But when you go in with, with a plan A and a plan B, and um, it's just a very, I, I love the process and I became fascinated with it. So I, that's why I wanted to get into the work that, that we do, because it's um, incredibly fulfilling for me. That's great. So first of all, thank you for the privilege um, for myself and the listeners to be able to share and hear your story. I think it helps people um, respond and think about uh, those that are struggling around them differently, that we can be more compassionate, knowing that, yeah, maybe we see somebody lying on the couch doing nothing, but we don't know what's happening for them. We don't know what's happened to them. Um, So I think that that's very helpful, but I want to flip it now. 
um, mm -hmm. to thinking about uh, the person who's at work, they're a supervisor or manager, and they're watching an employee who appears to be struggling. They don't know what's going on for them. What's your advice to them? The first thing I would say is that I, I see you, employer, CEO, you, you have a different, um, you have a different list of priorities and it, it's important to recognize that I'm empathetic to people in positions of leadership because even when they're at the top, they're actually in the middle of that sandwich. So they have the, they have financial pressures that are above them. Even if they're at the top of the chain, they're in business to make money, to provide jobs. They have a ton of responsibility. And uh, so I, the first thing I would, I would say is like, I see you, I recognize you. I know that you're looking at this through that lens and that's where we're going to start. So when it comes to seeing an employee that, that may be strong, struggling or underperforming or whatever expectations aren't being met, um, the lens that we need to look through is, is really simple. It's not complex. It's just a human lens. What if it was your son or your niece or your daughter? Um, and they were just not performing, you know, you have an expectation, perhaps they share that expectation and they just can't, um, for whatever reason, they're a human being and there is, everyone has a story. And I know I just told mine, Marianne, um, I've been through a lot in my life. I understand that, but what kind of unites us are the feelings that we have. So I've experienced trauma and that my story is my story, but we've all experienced deep sadness and grief and joy um, and pride. And, you know, we beat ourselves up over mistakes. So that's kind of the unifying theme. So when you look at a person, it's, it's easy to judge them for sure. And we've all done it. Um, no one's infallible. That's a, uh, that's something ingrained in us. That's part of our pack mentality is as human beings, is we, if we're in a group, if we're on a team doing this together, that we need everybody to contribute. And that's just innate. So don't beat yourself up over that. But what you can do is just switch your lens a little bit. And if your end game is to get them to perform for your business, I want you to step back from that lens too. Um, they will only perform at, in their highest capacity if they're performing at their highest capacity as a human being in their life. And our, our work life works, works out to be about 50, 60% of our waking hours. Um, it's not 100%. There are things happening in our personal lives that we bring to work. Uh, we know now that the idea of checking your baggage at the door, uh, I need you here, I need you present. Um, that was a real common theme in the, in the shops that I worked in. Um, which sounds great. And I understand the desire to implement a mindset like that. Uh, it's not completely ineffective or people wouldn't have done it. But what happened was it ostracized the human aspect of, of the workers. You know, we have these broad terms for employees and team members and crew. Um, and it, in a way, it, it dehumanizes us a little bit. It's, it's a necessary barrier. We have to discuss things in broad terms, um, in broad concepts and ideas. But when it comes down to one person, one human being, the lens always has to be a human one. And there's a reason why people are the way they are. Everyone has a story. And as, I, as we started this podcast, I said it's so important to know someone's why. And I've gone on to say how liberating it is to explain yourself truthfully without, without judgment. And that's, that's the approach as frustrating as these other factors may be, you're losing money. They're not making sales. Um, they're not showing up to work. That's all frustrating, but your end game is to make them to help them as a human, because that will help you as a business and as a leader of that business. Um, so work backwards. It, it starts with just being human. Mm -hmm. That's great. It um, that statement that you said, you know, I need you here and I need you present is uh, been around for decades. 
many decades. And like you say, they may not have been trying to be impersonal or unkind. They're trying to say, this is the way it is. But there's another part to that, which is, how can I help you to do that? Mm -hmm. Right? What do you need for me to do that? And that's the piece that gets missed sometimes. Now you've been in, uh, as you say, blue collar work, the trades, Mm -hmm. and you've also trained to be a psych health and safety advisor. The the general um, stereotype is that blue collar workplaces are less likely to engage in psych health and safety initiatives. I know personally some exceptions to that. What's your take on where they are now and what they need to do to uh, evolve? Um, That's a good question. The the stigma exists for a reason. Um, There would be a ton to unpack as to why. Um, But you're right, there are exceptions and those exceptions are growing every day. There are a lot of companies who um, their leadership has um, become younger or, or just more involved with, with societal stigmas and things like that, that are putting in the work, that are hiring people like us to come in and, and work with them. And so I'll start off just by celebrating them for sure, because it's, it's not across the board. But, I, and there's a but, the stigma does exist. And those, cult, those stereotypical cultures do exist. Um, they're not by design. We don't intend to, to have toxic workplaces, um, but it's important to find out why. And, and like, it's important to take stock of where your company is at and how your employees interact, especially in the blue collar trades. They're, they tend to be male dominated. That's shifting as well, which is huge. Um, but we're still seeing a lot of old school thinking because those men, uh, I shouldn't just say men, but those employees have been brought into that culture and trained in that culture. So when you apprentice, my training came on the job. So I didn't go to, I went to school, you know, for two months, a year, for four years um, to sit in a desk and the rest of my training, I was ingrained in the culture. I was working as I was training. So these practices that are um, Gen Xers and, and baby boomers that they were brought up in, that's how we were trained and that's all they knew. Um, so that's how it perpetuates. And it can be, it can feel really daunting to put a stop to that carousel. We're not looking to stop it overnight. There's no, if you put the hard brakes on, everyone will fly off and you'll, you'll have a disaster. So it's a, it's a long game and it's really, again, it's working backwards from your end game. We want to see less sexism and misogyny in the workplace we want to see less bullying um i was witness and to be frank i was party to workplace practices done by employees that were harmful that were toxic and we do them for different reasons um we want to fit in you know if we're working in a confined environment for eight hours 10 hours 12 hours a day um we don't we don't want to be ostracized by our peers by people who've been there for 10 or 15 years We'll go along, we'll laugh at their jokes. We'll go along with them. Um, so what does that do with our workplace culture over time? Um, I get older. I have a, an apprentice come in. We tell the same jokes again because they worked the first time. You know, we're all still here employed. It must work, right? Um, so working better is, is it can be a challenging concept for some companies because if, it, you know, the doors keep swinging open every day, the lights come on, money's, you know, people are getting paid. Why would we change um, because of the effect that it's having on, on people, even away from work and at work? Um, for example, I worked with a lot of uh, immigrants, a lot of, a lot of people who came from outside of Canada looking for work. They came to Alberta. Um, we had a good economy back then. And it was really hard on them. And they, are, they were here with the hope of just making a good living um, to, they tried to fit in. Um, but when they were here, it felt automatic that they didn't. And I, that it's just one example of a, of a subculture that was really hard to reconcile and how our treatment of, of someone who we perceive as below us on the, on the hierarchy of our company 
um, we have to look at people in a, from a human lens and, uh, you know, we, we talk a lot about teamwork and our presentations and consultations, but like, what does that really look like? Um, how are we cooperating? How are we seeing each other? What's the philosophy of how we come to work? What's our mindset like? And, um, I'm throwing out a lot of big phrases here. If you're, if you're a CEO listening right now, it, the easiest thing to do is nothing. And the worst thing that you can do is nothing. I promise you both of those statements are true. Um, but it, it's also, it doesn't have to be a huge financial burden to start making change. Setting an example is free. And if you're in a leadership position, if you own a company, you have to look in the mirror and it's, there's nothing to be scared of. It's you. So just take stock of who you are. We all have our faults. We all have our strengths. Um, but how are, how are you running your company? What's, if you want to think even more macro than that, what would you like your legacy to be? Ask yourself that question. Do you want to be known as the company who was a pioneer in, in, you know, psychologically safe workplaces in workplace respect? Uh, cause that, that's a hell of a legacy to have. And people will, will think of you and will take after you for decades, forever. Um, because you took a chance, because you recognized something that your peers and your competitors maybe didn't. Um, there's so much opportunity and there's so much benefit. Um, we could break this down into, into many different ways, both financially and culturally and things like that. But it's you, you just want your employees to come to work and feel safe. You want them to be honest with you. You want them to be proud of their work. That's how people work harder when they feel proud to be there, when they feel seen and heard. And it doesn't take major changes to, to help make that happen. And, and to, you know, if there's complaints, if there's um, deficiencies that are being brought up, how are you dealing with them? Are, is it a burden to you? Or is it something that you're like, I have an opportunity to make a change. And it's, it all comes down to mindset and being a leader, you're in a tough position. I empathize with that. Um, you have a lot on your plate and somebody has to be looking after you too. Well, I'll tell you what, you have an entire team of employees who look up to you. They rely on you for those paychecks, uh, for stability. Um, have you ever thought about using them to help you as well? Because when you start to change the culture in a workplace and really integrate like a team mentality, um, they can support you too, because you're at the top. You don't have a lot of support. You're supposed to be the person in charge. Um, but when you're a little more vulnerable, a little more open, and your team members see that, and they see you as a human being too, um, you have a ton of support beneath you and beside you. And leading, leading from beside is, is a term that I like to use in my consultations often. Um, and the, the benefits to that are just it's off the charts. I, I can't, I can't say it enough. It's um, quite unknown to many leaders that they actually could have um, that kind of emotional psychological support for them, their employees. They say it's lonely at the top, but if you're leading beside instead of over, it's not that lonely. There's lots of people there. We have an activity called a mistake meeting where the leader says, these are the mistakes that I've made. And I'm wondering if you can help me figure out what we could do to make this better. And our advice is always, you do that a few times, but then you start to get your employees to do the same, to talk about the mistakes they made, the challenges they faced, and to either say, here's how I solved for that. Here's what I did. Mm -hmm. Or to say, can you help me? And that can change a culture. Like you say, it's not an expensive, big activity, right. but it will slowly change hearts and minds in a workplace. I love that idea. That would be a really interesting exercise. I think it would be, it would be interesting on how leadership would get to the point where they would feel comfortable embarking on an exercise like that, just based on prior, you know, probably the way that they were brought into the industry that they're, they're leading in. Right. And um, it can be very humbling. I, I personally, I've come a long ways as far as humility goes 
Um, I was raised with a lot of pride. I had a strong dad who, you know, the quiet pride type he. Um, so I, I carried a lot of pride and it was tough to admit my mistakes. Um, as you know, especially in a leadership position, I was captain of my hockey team and all I cared about was not making any mistakes. And, uh, boy, did I ever beat myself up when I got caught, you know, flat footed and, you know, a guy walked in around me. I didn't talk about it. I didn't, you know, I didn't acknowledge it. That's what I felt a leader would do. So I can, I'm smiling right now. I know your listeners can't see me, but I'm, I'm <laughs> grinning ear to ear because I just love the idea of leadership, showing humility and a little bit of vulnerability and, uh, and just how beneficial that would be in a round table discussion. I think that vulnerability is the new superhero strength because you have to be confident. You have to have your ego in check. You have to have a vision for who you are and what you're doing in order to be able to admit mistakes. If you are mm -hmm. operating from a place of fear and insecurity, you will not be able to do that. What has changed is the idea that you will lose respect if yes. you, all of the research that we've seen on it is the opposite, mm -hmm. that you gain respect when you are authentic and genuine and when you can be vulnerable. But the reason this works so well is because no one person has all the answers. And if mm -hmm. you can uh, check in with the people that are on the front line doing the work and say, you know, how could we do this better? You may have answers that you wouldn't have thought of in any case. So it's, it's a real benefit to do that. Yeah. Yes. I love all of that. And you can still be decisive. You can still be a strong leader. If that's your, if you're, you know, your type D personality type, if you're familiar with disc, but it's, you can still be you. Um, all you're doing is just leading from beside. So you've just, you've just come down and utilized people who are, who are dying to share their insights, who are on the front lines, who see things that maybe you don't every day. Um, and they're willing to give you that feedback. They're willing to, you know, if you allow them to openly criticize you even, and if you can find it to, to accept that in a way that this is an opportunity. This isn't a detriment, you know, this is an opportunity. And I, now I have an ally, somebody who felt safe enough to trust me with their honest feedback. Um, now I'm on a team. It's not so lonely at the top. I'm, I'm, I have somebody who wants to help me solve this problem. Um, and it's, it, it can be a difficult mindset to change, but I, I've noticed at least in the work that I do, that it's happened pretty quickly. And for people who reach out to uh, for consultants like yourself and I, um, they're already curious, you know, yeah. they want, they want to find a new strategy. I know that's what makes our job so easy. Yes. <laughs> we're not getting the people that we have to convince. We're getting the people who are convinced and they just say, help me. We want to know how, um, I'm also thinking that, uh, we need to do a better job, um, teaching people how to give feedback in a way that doesn't trigger, in a way that doesn't feel um, like a personal judgment, mm -hmm. so that everybody, leaders included, can hear it and it's not painful. It doesn't feel like an attack. Yep. And uh, yeah, do you do some of that work, Christopher? Yeah, it, take, it takes practice. And I I use myself as, a, as an example all the time because I, I just alluded to, I, I have pride. And uh, I know it's one of the seven deadly sins, but like I have the self-awareness to know that I don't always take criticism. I, I shouldn't say, I'll flip it this way. Sometimes I take criticism personally. Mm -hmm. um, so what I've realized is if somebody is criticizing something that I did, an action that I did, that's not me. That's, we can compartmentalize that as, uh, as an action that happened. I, I, I did it, but it's not a personal attack on me. It's something I did. You can change actions all the time. You can learn from them easy. Step one, two. So it, it changing your mindset about what criticism means and how personally we are tied to, you know, what we do, how we run a business, the business 
may you may identify deeply with your role inside a company. Um, but at the end of the day, it's still not you personally. It's just how you're acting on behalf of that company, what your role is, what you bring to it. So there's a little bit of uh, weaving wordsmithing that's happening, but I hope I'm getting my, my point across is that criticism feels the way that it does um, because we feel personally attacked and nine times out of 10, it's not a personal attack. It's just, it's an action or an outcome that we may have been a part of. There are always going to be other factors. There's going to be a reason why you thought the way you did and made said action. Those are the important parts of the conversation and they have nothing but good things to say about you when you have them. Yeah, there's, there's really two pieces to that. One is as a leader, you ought to know that criticism usually feels like an attack. Mm -hmm. So you need to learn to give it in a way that is more positive and that sandwich thing isn't enough. No. It's being able to say, not Christopher, you are wrong, but Christopher, this is what I'd like instead. You know, what do you need to do it this way? Yeah. And the um, reverse of that is that a lot of people in leadership positions, they don't get it because they hear criticism and they either go, oh, that's interesting perspective. I think I'm going to use that. Or they say, no, I thanks for your opinion, but I don't agree and I'm okay. But that's the minority of people mm -hmm. feel that way. That most of us get triggered by criticism. Yep. Yeah, it's a natural thing. So don't beat yourself up too much over it. If you're, if you're like me and you bristle a little bit, I have to catch myself. Um, and that's just part of it. But I also, I've surrounded myself with friends and, and family who um, are also my checks and balances. And that's part of building a great team and a great company. Um, people that you respond well to who are, who are respectful and like you, you can train people to, to give criticism in a respectful, productive way. Um, yeah. It's all about the end game. What, what are we trying to get out of it? Am I criticizing you to attack you? Probably not. People just aren't inherently out to attack others, or we'd be zombies in the streets doing the horrible things to each other. We generally, we're pack animals. We want to work together. Um, we just have these things called emotions that, uh, that are really sticky and icky sometimes. And they, it's not fun, but there's ways around it. And we're, you know, the, it's not as hard as, as it sounds. And no matter how hard-headed you are, stubborn, old school, whatever you want to call yourself, you're stuck in your ways. Um, they're, you're big softy. So shut up. <laughs> you're you're, you're going to be fine. And no one's perfect. The person criticizing you isn't perfect. You're not perfect. Um, we can all sit with just a good idea and learn to share that idea. It's not about the credit for the idea. So that's one thing that I like to unpack for leadership as well. Um, oftentimes we want, we want credit for doing the right thing and we want recognition and, and uh, validation and things like that. That's important to our human psyche. We really need that stuff. So how do we deliver that constructively? How, how are we distributing that um, preemptively without having to ask for recognition and, and, and things like that. So it's, um, it's just a different way of thinking about, about yourself and about what you're receiving from others. Mm -hmm. um, my tribe and I will call each other and say, you know, so-and-so said this and I felt this. What do you think? And most of the time, the other person's going to say, do you think they maybe meant this instead? Do you think maybe it was a little less um, of an attack and a little more of a statement? And uh, you said the same thing, that you go to the people you trust and you check it out. I think all emotions have wisdom and information for us, even the negative ones, even the pride. Okay, why am I feeling a little insecure here? What am I thinking is under attack? And all of it can be useful. But it's if we take the time, right? Take the time to examine yeah. it instead of fight it or try to shove it down. The easy thing to do is nothing. I get it. <laughs> it's really attractive to just go, that sounds nice, but like, no, I don't want my ideas challenged or my emotions exposed. I get it. It's not as weird as we make it up in our minds. I was that person for a long time. 
I didn't yeah. want to go there. I didn't want to go there, but you know what? I went there and it was, it was the best thing I could do. I'm still learning. I'm still growing. Some of those things are, are deeply ingrained in us, our emotional reactions and emotional regulation is, I did a podcast episode with a, with a therapist on just that. And I reached out to him because I was personally not regulating my reactions on social media. It was nothing egregious or anything like that. I just noticed that I was, I was not reacting as rational as I felt I could. And so we, we unpacked emotional regulation and, and just how we receive criticism, how we dole it out. Um, and it, it was an eye opener. It was, a, it was definitely an aha moment um, that translates to, to every aspect of life, especially the workplace. Um, there's, all these, there's all these tropes like cogs in a wheel, parts of the machine, and it all sounds so inhuman. Like, no, we are a, we're a pack. We're like, we're just trying to, we're all winging it. And mm -hmm. uh, no one has all the ideas. And if you, if you surround yourself with people with, with good ideas, you got to give them a platform to share them and to be honest with you, because you will, you will get information that is so invaluable. Um, and all you have to do is just one, one glug of swallowing your pride, maybe just for a moment, give them that space. And it's, I'm, I'm, I'm now I'm hand talking because I'm very passionate about this part. It's the, <laughs> it's the mindset and philosophy of, of mental health and psychologically safe workplaces that, that is really at the crux of, of what we do. Yeah, that's great. I've got one last question for you. I can't believe this hour is gone, but one last question for you. And that is, if you were to describe psychological health and safety in the workplace, I know you know the actual definition, but I'm saying if you were just to describe it to a lay person in common language that they could understand it, how would you describe it? Um, in my own words, all I want to do is give the <laughs> definition. I'll try to keep it concise, I guess. A psychologically safe workplace is where someone can be, um, where they can, they're put in a, in a position to succeed, that they're seen and heard, uh, respected and valued, um, and that the, the discourse that they project is, is one of acceptance and one of, of value, I guess. And there's... I kind of I kind of hate what I just said because there's a lot of words in there that are they get tossed around a lot in this industry. Um, really, it's just selflessly creating a space for somebody to just be themselves um, and to be recognized for their strengths and perceived weaknesses. Even though I don't really believe that, but they're just put in a position to succeed as who they are, and they're given they're given the right tools to do that. They're given the right support. Um, they're allowed to be honest and um, they're, they're allowed to just be themselves. We, we've all had to put on a suit and tie to go to work. We've all had to wear different uniforms and name tags and it's all, it's made every one of us a little bit uncomfortable and it's just part of business sometimes. But when you take all that away, like how can they just be a, a functional, happy, you know, respected human being when they're, when they're doing a job that, uh, that they've been trained to do that they want, they want to be successful at and they want to take pride in. Yeah. And I think that's a good place to leave it. Humans wanting to do a good job is uh, what I think some of us miss when we're doing all of this is that's who we are, right? We just want yeah. to be successful. We want to feel appreciated. Christopher, thank you so much for all of your sharing, for all of your wisdom, for all of your time. Um, this will show up on social media through LinkedIn, for, through the Flourish DX um, account, as well as through my own. And uh, people can find you on LinkedIn as well. Yes. Yes. So thank you very much uh, for everything and uh, wish you all the best. Thank you, Marianne. It was a pleasure to be here. And uh, thank you for every everything that you do. I love this forum and um, keep up the great work. I'm proud of you. 
You've been listening to the Psych Health and Safety Canada podcast. To stay up to date with the best content on workplace mental health in North America, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the Flourish DX community at www.flourishdx.com. Thank you.